This episode of Crossing the 180 is brought to you by Sony's C Media Cloud. C supports the entire media lifecycle to streamline workflows for your video production teams so that you can go from camera to cloud to Final Cut faster. Learn more about C and book your free demo at sonymcs.com. That's Sony, M as in Mary, C as in Charlie, S as in Sam.com. Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi, dear hoi, girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy Ron Dawson coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180. Part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and informative conversations about culture and craft with artists, entrepreneurs, and filmmakers doing amazing work in the world of film and television. And today, I have a good friend who is a huge lover of the art and craft of filmmaking, Tema Steg. She's the executive director of Women in Media. She's a production designer. She's a film historian a teacher, and someone who I think is perfect for this podcast because she's the kind of person you go out to coffee with and you just get lost in hours-long conversations about all things cinema. And uh, you'll definitely hear that passion in this conversation I have with her. Uh, I met her first a few years ago, and I won't go into it too much now because we talk about it, but it's was during the time when I was doing my last filmmaking podcast where you know, film school and we connected. And one of the things I've enjoyed about my relationship and uh, friendship with Tema is that our relationship started when she reached out to me in order actually to, I would say, in a friendly and diplomatic way, offer me some critique on a uh, series I had done with the Radio Film School as it related to women in film. And what could have been something that someone else might have taken personally or might have let get to their ego, I took it, I responded to and absorbed her feedback and appreciated it. And we started like this great email conversation about, you know, the role of women in media. And then somehow we got into email conversation about faith and religion. You know, she is a proud atheist. And at the time I was a lot more into my Christian faith. I'm kind of like going through this deconstruction phase now, but particularly at the time when she reached out to me, I was like super into it. And, but we just had this beautiful back and forth about God and what it meant. And, and she was the kind of person where you could have these kind of conversations with. And even though you disagreed on certain aspects of art or life or philosophy, it kind of showed how you could still be civil. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. After I said goodbye to her, she said, do you want to talk about the slap? So as of this recording, it's only a few days, a week or so after the Oscars. And as of my interview with her, it was only two or three days after the Oscars where the slap heard around the world was made. And so I saved that conversation and everything that came after it as a bonus, because by the time you hear this, you may be sick of it. And uh, I'm recording this on April 1st. 
And just today, Will Smith announced that he is uh, resigning from the Academy. By the time you hear this, who knows what may have happened. So keep that in mind that what you're listening to now was recorded on April 1st. The interview was recorded three days ago from this recording. So keep that in mind when you're listening to the bonus episode. But I think it's a great conversation and it's a fun one to have. So we have a great regular conversation about her career and about filmmaking and cinema and all the good stuff that goes along with that, particularly as it relates to the role of women and how that has transpired over the years. And then there will be the credits. And then afterwards, we'll get into a very uh, hearty conversation about that slap. Anyway, hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Tim Steg. See you on the other side. Well, how are you doing, Tama? I'm doing okay. I am doing fine. All is well. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can't complain. I've been to do this for a while. It's funny because I've interviewed you so many times, I feel like in the past, for my older podcast, and we just we just talked so many times. I was like, I can't believe I've never had on Crossing the 180 yet. So I'm glad to, to bring you on. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Do you remember how we first... Matt? Yes, I think I do. I feel like you were putting together some panels and some of them were about women, but you had like a lot of guys. (laughs) 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 Or maybe it was that like the picture for the thing about women had like a guy on the cover and I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) Yeah. So what I remember was in my old radio film school podcast, I had done this trailer. It was more like a preview. And I remember, I thought it was really cool. It was introducing the podcast. And I remember someone uh, emailing saying how they really liked the trailer preview, but I didn't have any women filmmakers in there. Oh. And that kind of like started my journey way back when of, and it, I was totally oblivious to the fact that none of the filmmakers in my trailer were women. Like, I didn't purposely leave them out. It just didn't occur to me. And then I was looking at, like, my list of people who I connected to interview, and they were, like, all guys. And it was, like, this blind spot that I had. You know, that was during a time, this is like, 2015, 2016, where it was really an eye-opening experience for me of my male privilege, for lack of a better word. And, you know, I frequently talk about uh, white privilege in, in various essays that I've written. And I always try to explain to, you know, white people who, who get offended that it's not something to be offended about. It's just like a fact of life that there are certain privileges you have for being white. And that was a time where I, I was really open. My eyes opened up to the privileges I had to being male and, and being blinded to this aspect that it didn't even occur to me. And so when I started crossing the 180, you know, this season, I made a conscious effort to have people that I would interview that would fill those blind spots that I've had. And so all that to say, way back when, I remember you like emailing me. I think it was about like, yeah, listen to one of the episodes or maybe you saw something and you very respectfully shared your, <laughs> your <laughs> which you thought about it. And it started what I thought is really a, has been like a great friendship and a beautiful way mm-hmm. of being able to 
uh, two people to disagree on different things. And not that I disagreed with you about the women thing, but like, I appreciated that you came to me and say, Hey, you know, this is something's wrong here. You should address it. But I didn't, I like, I wasn't offended. Like I didn't say, mm-hmm. well, you know, what are you talking about? You know, and it opened up this conversation. And, and since then we've had so many great conversations about faith and filmmaking. And, and mm-hmm. so I'm glad you can be on today to continue our conversations. Thank you. And what I appreciated about you was how good natured you were. Like you took, you took what I had to say and you were like, Oh, okay. We had some very, um, fulsome forthcoming, Mm -hmm. uh, open hearted conversations, you know, about things that maybe we had some blind spots about, or that we didn't agree about, or that, you know, we didn't, Maybe I didn't understand, like about religion. You know, I'm an atheist, mm-hmm. and of course, you're a Christian. And we've been able to have some really great conversations about that, which I've always appreciated. Yeah, that we can yeah. still be friends, we can respect each other, we don't have to be the same on everything, exactly. but we can certainly coexist and appreciate each other's point of view. I think is like the best part of being a human being is that you can actually find people who don't align 100% with who you are, but you can still find common ground. I think is incredibly powerful. Really great. Yeah. So I usually like to start these with this question I'm going to ask you is what's your earliest movie memory? Like a profound movie memory that you have and what kind of effect did it have on you? So when I was really, really little, they brought back Fantasia. Mm. Right. And we, and we, I went to the theater with my dad. And I was so little, I sat on his lap. Oh, right? yeah. And, you know, but some of my earliest film memories are being with my dad mm-hmm. and just feeling so warm and protected and happy. And, you know, I just had this great relationship with my father. Hmm. And I was sitting on his lap and the night on Bald Mountain mm-hmm. comes on. I was terrified. Mm. I was absolutely out of my mind terrified to where I couldn't even look at it. Um, It was so scary, but I sat on my dad's lap and he comforted me. And that's probably one of my earliest memories of being in the movies. And of course, I remember watching all kinds of movies on TV. It was a time when some of us had black and white TVs. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like the wealthy people had the color TVs and the rest of us had black and white, you know, these like little, little teeny horrible. With the antenna. Yeah. With the rabbit ears. The rabbit ears. The dial. Oh, yeah. Oh, what a terrible way to watch TV. But, you know, I, I would wake up early on on the weekends to watch the Jackson five TV show and then Osmonds, you know, they yep. were like Canyon TV shows. Yep. Right. And then there was like fat Albert and all those, you had to get up early to watch them. You had yeah. to, you had to, you had to. Yes, yes, yes. It, it's funny. You talked about the night in bald mountain. Uh, a lot of those older Disney animated features have images that are, you can consider pretty dark and scary. Like I think about, you know, the dragon and was it Sleeping Beauty when the witch mm-hmm. turns into a dragon? Oh, and, yeah. And uh, like you said, the Night in Bald Mountain, the witch in Snow White, super freaky. <laughs> She's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it, it, this interesting that kind of, it makes me wonder, like when they were originally made, like were they made for kids? I 
feel like they were, but I also feel like Hans Christian Andersen mm-hmm. stories are very dark, mm-hmm. right? There's a long history of very dark stories for kids. Yeah. And I don't think Disney was immune mm-hmm. to showing some fairly dark stories, you know, but I think also Fantasia has so much classical music in it that I think it was actually meant to attract an adult mm-hmm. audience as well. Certainly someone like my dad who really right. liked classical music and jazz. Like that was what he yeah. listened to when I was at home on yeah. the, you know, like a good record player. My dad had like right. prized record player and his prized records. And, you know, I had to use the tone arm to put the needle on the record. And it was like a very big deal. <laughs> if my dad let me play his records, it was like, okay, I'm trusting you with this. You right, know what I right. mean? It was a different time. I think our experience of entertainment was really different mm-hmm. than certainly. Of course it is so much different. It's so different than it, it is now for sure. Yeah, and I totally. Think, um, that communal experience, especially with your parents of going to a movie and a lot of my formative I guess character building came through the movies and Mm. a lot of it came through spending time with my father because he was a real cinephile right Mm. so he like loved Akira Kurosawa like massive Kurosawa fan massive Kubrick fan you know like my when I was a teenager my father sat me down I'm not kidding I was maybe 14 or 15 something like that Mm. he sat me down and we watched a clockwork orange together at 13 I know yeah, I was a kid. I was young, right. but I was fairly mature for my okay. age, you know. And I, like, like I say, I was a cinephile. Right. Like we would, we'd spend Saturdays watching all the kung fu movies mm-hmm. on TV, and all that, you know, we'd like spend all day watching those movies and just having a blast. But he sat me down. This is, you know, once we got to to DVDs, right? right? And uh, he sat me down, we watched it. And it was at a time when a lot of kids were having trouble or a lot of people in general were having trouble kind of separating reality. Maybe this continues, Mm -hmm. right? Separating reality from entertainment. I mean, clearly it's still a problem, but he sat me down. He was like, okay, so you know, this is strictly um, fake. This is entertainment. These are not people you should be emulating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we had a very adult, a very grown-up conversation about a clockwork orange and the themes of it. And it made me feel very um, mature, mm-hmm. right? And I and I really felt respected by my father yeah. because we watched what's clearly a very grown-up film and had a very grown-up conversation mm-hmm. about it. And it was formative. It really um it, it gave us a chance to really talk about life, mm-hmm. you know, and about good content and and how something can be really wrong and you can still understand it as a cautionary tale and that like, this is not real. Whereas I think, you know, it was banned in England. It was banned in England for many, many years because wow. people were afraid the kids would go, you know, banana. <laughs> right, right. They'd watch it. They'd go crazy. And of course it's like, well, it's really how, how you treat your kids. Right. I mean, if you keep your kids under a rock and don't, talk about stuff with them then yeah they don't know Mm -hmm. but if you do sit them down respectfully and have a discussion about it i think we need to give children a little more credit and i think people in general it's really a question of getting them off on the right foot so i was able to have a lot of very good conversations with my dad about different films Mm -hmm. and 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 they translated into life right so what do we learn through 
you know, in terms of life experience by watching movies and having conversations translated into my, my ethics yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> so. I want to, you know, eventually kind of one of the conversations I want to have with you is just really about the various states of cinema, you know, today, you know, the blurred lines between television and film, the the kind of themes that we're seeing in both television and film, your take on representation, all that kind of thing, because uh, I think you'd have a really interesting take. But before we get to all of that, you do a lot of different things in the industry. I know you're a teacher. Like if someone asks you, what do you do? Like what's your answer to that? Because I always like to ask multi-hyphenates, like which one of the hyphenates is their main hyphenate? What's it for you? You know, I keep evolving and changing mm-hmm. because, you know, I'm a fidgety person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm a very curious person. And I always like to learn new things. I'm always kind of stretching and trying to find what's going to be exciting to me next. Yeah. So, um, as you know, I'm the executive director of Women in Media, right. which is an organization for women and gender nonconforming people above and below the line. We're really trying to get more parity and inclusion in the entertainment industry. We do have male members now, by the oh, way. I didn't know that. We do. We have an executive membership, which is for guys who are, and, and all genders actually, mm-hmm. who are in a position to hire, who aren't necessarily looking for a crewless profile, mm-hmm. but also want a lot of the other benefits of women in media, right. like our education and the networking. I like a lot of the stuff that you might not be able to take part in or get discounts for, for that matter, mm-hmm. um, are part of being an executive member. So there's that. And then I'm also uh, an executive producer and producer these days. And I'm still a production designer. Mm-hmm. And I was a scenic artist and art director. Right. Now, did I get the teaching part wrong? Did you used to be? Oh, you got that you right. Do. I did. Where do you, where, <laughs> what level did you teach? Was it college? Was it? Yes, I taught college. I was the associate course director for art direction at LA film school for a while. So it was part of the curriculum for a mm-hmm. while. And then that all went awry, but that's another story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that you're executive producing and producing. Is that something you've been, is that one of the uh, disciplines you've added recently or have you done it for a while? When did that come into your repertoire? So I actually produced a short um, quite a while ago mm-hmm. with Jacqueline Kim, mm-hmm. who. She played Sulu's daughter on Star Trek, one of those movies. Oh, cool! But that's for you, yeah, Ron. It is. I know you. I know how you love. But do you remember Sulu had a daughter yeah. who was an ensign, and she thought oh, yeah, that yeah. was Jacqueline Kim. So she's a friend of mine, and I produced her short. And then when we started doing the camaraderie lab through Women in Media, I became executive producer because I was getting all the money mm-hmm. <laughs> and all the goods and services. And we got like, we had a lot of vendor relations. I've been able to really build on that. I think it's really important, no matter who you are in the industry to have good relationships with your vendors, mm-hmm. right? They're there to help you. I mean, they're there. Sure. They're there to sell product and everything, but really they're there to help you and educate you and make sure that you know how to use their, their products really well. Um, And we work with some really top tier folks. Mm -hmm. So I was able to accrue quite a bit of gear um, and prizes as well for the camaraderie program. So as a result, I've been producing and executive producing. And that program goes from development into festivals Mm. and now into distribution. Oh, wow. So our first slate was in 2019. Mm -hmm. And those films just keep going on the festival circuit. Right. And now we're getting ready to distribute them. We're working on, you know, where that's going to go mm-hmm. exactly. 
And we just finished our 2021 slate and had the cast and crew screening at uh, Raleigh stages right here in Hollywood Mm -hmm. and had a nice big fancy party and an award ceremony. I actually got this thing. Do you see this behind me? I can see it, but I can't read it. Okay. So it's a certificate from the city. And what's the certificate for? So it's a certificate of recognition whereby presented to women in media on behalf of the city of Los Angeles in the fourth district. We proudly recognize women in media for their work to create a just and equitable film and entertainment industry reflective of moviegoers everywhere. Your dedication to building a more respectful, inclusive and balanced workplace for all genders is paving the way for generations of filmmakers to come and impactfully challenge the industry from the ground up. We congratulate you on an incredible year and look forward to your continued success. That's cool. Cool, right? Well, that's a good segue into, you know, how long ago did you start Women in Media? And was there something specifically that was the impetus for you starting it? Well, I couldn't get anyone else to do Mm -hmm. it, to be honest. (laughs) You know, like any movements. um, I felt like the movement to kind of correct the imbalances in our industry was moving too slowly Mm -hmm. and nobody was recognizing below the line. It was all about directors. And if only we hire more directors and writers and producers, it'll trickle down and they'll hire women below the line Mm -hmm. and more people of color below the line and it'll trickle down. And, you know, in like a hundred years from now, it'll all be great. (laughs) (laughs) And for 40 years, they'd been struggling with this idea that, you know, we'll just get more women actors, more, you know, better parody in front of the camera right. and all that more directors. And that since that wasn't working and nobody else believed, nobody gave credence to below the line. Mm-hmm. So I went to a whole bunch of organizations and none of them wanted to take it on. So it's like, I guess I have to do it myself. Mm. And I'd been doing these community events where we would screen films of historical significance by women directors And people didn't know who these filmmakers were. And I didn't either, even though in undergraduate school, I took six film history classes. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that many women directors. I knew um, the German expressionist filmmaker, Leontine Sagan, Mm -hmm. right? I knew her because I had seen Madchen in uniform. And I knew Lenny Reifenstahl. Mm -hmm. And it went downhill quickly from there, right? Even though I took like a film noir class, you know, I should have learned about Ida Lupino. Like I didn't learn about these massive giants of the film industry so my friend samantha was doing seeking our story and she needed a better audience and since i'd been doing a networking event at one of the schools where i was teaching and i was getting lots of traction there i was like look i'm gonna help you get more people to come to these screenings and we'll double your numbers every month and sure enough that's what happened we got too big for each venue Mm. and we kept on having to grow to bigger bigger venues right And also, there's another example of where people were leaving money on the table. They were saying, oh, nobody wants to see films by women. They're not interested. I swear to you, that's what people were saying, right? They were saying this. And then we proved them wrong. You know, we did it good naturedly. We were like, yeah, you know, and they they didn't want to screen the films with us. And when they saw how things were growing, we were able to convince a few of them (laughs) that, you know, this is actually going to make you some money. Like, people will come and see the films. Um, they got into it. So what we do for this event is we would have like some food just to hold people over and then, and they would sign in, right? So they would fill out a contact sheet, which we would then just 
everybody who showed up. We would do a little bit of networking. And then I would do a 10 minute PowerPoint about the filmmaker because I didn't know who they were. Like, who's Dorothy Arsner? How would I know? Nobody talked about her. I didn't learn about her in film school, which is criminal, right. absolutely criminal. And then we would screen one of her films. So, you know, people didn't know that she designed the boom mic. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> she, I've seen a few of those on sets that. before. Yes, I think you have. <laughs> you know, she she taught Francis Ford Coppola. She became an, a teacher. She taught Francis Ford Coppola how to direct. She transitioned from from silent films to talkies as a director. She directed Paramount's first talkie. She started yeah. out as an editor. She she created found footage, putting found footage into your movie. Like literally, they were they were doing a, a Valentino film called Blood and Sand. And they're like, oh, it's too expensive. We're going to have to go out to Spain to shoot this thing. She's like, no, you're not. Just get some, we'll get some footage of a bullfight. Mm -hmm. And then we'll do a reversal on Valentino and match them up and we're good. So she saved them thousands of dollars in like silent film era money. Right. So she kept on innovating, constantly What innovating. was her name again? Dorothy Arzner. Dorothy Arzner. Yeah. She was the first woman to join the DGA. Wow. Like, how is it possible that she's not in everyday film conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's because women were swept under the rug. They were diminished. Their importance was diminished. Their contributions have either been stolen or diminished. And we haven't given them their due. Anyway, so that's what Seeking Our Story was very much about. Yeah. Um, other people got wind of it. And before you know it, we could just go to the movies, which was really the goal. Yeah. <laughs> We fulfilled our mission. It was like now the hammer was screening films uh, by women directors of historical significance. And we could just go to the movies. And that's really what Samantha ever wanted. And then women in media started getting much more popular. And people kept coming to me because they knew I had accumulated all of these contact sheets right. of women above and below the line. And what I found is that people would ask me and then I'd have to ask the women. I'd be like, hey, somebody wants to know about you. Oh, I'd have to go through this whole thing, this rigmarole. Right. Can you send me your resume or can I just connect you? And I decided it would be so much easier if I just created um, a Google spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And then people went up and had other people be able to see it. And what I realized is that once you get to 2,000 users, Google is no longer stable. Mm. <laughs> Fast forward to the first women's march. I had a friend who needed women uh, to shoot his documentary. Mm -hmm. This guy's asking me for women to shoot for him all over the country. Right. And I'm not an agent. I didn't really want to be an agent. And that's why I started the spreadsheet. But like I say, it got too big. And I decided to make a proper crew list where people could search and look at people and get more information. And we went 501c3 mm -hmm. and created a proper organization with a very strong mission to actually change the industry. Because otherwise, I mean, it had taken 40 years for nothing to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't say nothing, like something is did, but it was always like three steps forward, four steps back. Yeah. You know, ever since the original six at the DGA really pushed the issue. Again, that's something you might want to look up. That's another story altogether. I was like, I don't have another 40 years to wait for this, nor do I want to. So I'll do everything I can to just force it and push it and do it, 
you know, with love and generosity and hope that other people get on board. And that seems to be how things have kind of moved forward. So I feel like there's a very strong demarcation, like 2017 is when we went 501c3 Mm -hmm. and the numbers have consistently changed since then. Before that, they really weren't moving very far or they would move a little bit and go back. And I feel proud in that the organization has helped move the movement. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's great. And it's funny, whenever whenever you hear about the stats of women at different levels of you know the business, you know, as of this recording, the Oscars were a few days ago and Jane Campion won. To my knowledge, she's only the third woman to win Best Director. I mean, I think Catherine Bigelow was the first. Um, Chloe Zhao was, I believe, the second mm-hmm. last year or the year before. I think it was last year. Either last year or the year before. Yeah. And now Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. Sigh. Yeah. Yeah. And almost 100 years. I know. And so you see that. And then I remember uh, a few months or so ago, I watched Gina Davis's documentary, This Changes Everything. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's on Netflix. I have. In fact, Tom Donahue Uh is the director. Gina Davis is the producer the, i think the executive producer right so the story i just told you about mm-hmm. with my guy friend who needed women right. for his film that was tom oh that's so interesting in fact it's so funny because i thought it was ironically funny when i was reading the credits that a guy directed yeah. it you want to hear the real dish behind all that yeah of course i always love this should we spill the tea are you spill ready the tea Okay, when Tom was making the project mm-hmm. um, and it was announced that Gina Davis was going to be producing it, oh my God, the feminist film community lost their shizzle. I you bet. know that's a fact. Oh, they went nuts. You know, and there were there were other women directors making projects about women directors. Right. And they were like, how and the the headline was Gina Davis is making a movie about women directors directed by a man. Right. And everybody lost it. So, I mean, you know how I am. It's like I can get as heated as the next person, but I also like to kind of find out what the real story is. Yeah, for sure. I reached out to Tom. I reached out to him. Cold reached out to him Mm. and he was taking some heat, needless to say. I reached out to him on Twitter. Yeah. And we took it off Twitter very quickly. You know, we went back and forth quite a bit. And I met his L.A. He's he was in New York at the time. I met his L.A. producer. We had a nice cup of coffee and mm-hmm. <laughs> some pastry. He was lovely. And then I said to Tom, I said, look, I know other women who are conquering the same topic. Um, their issue is that Gina wasn't interested in them. And he was and he said, well, we didn't ask Gina for any money. All that we asked her for was data. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if the other women, if that was the same thing or if they were looking for cash. I don't I don't really know that story, that side of it. But I know that Amy Adrian made an amazing film along the same lines, mm-hmm. and so did Cody. But what happened with Tom is that I asked him, I said, hey, okay, so there's nothing we can do about your gender. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think it's okay. This is an everybody's story. I don't think only women should be reporting on this. I think we need multiple angles. And I also think that, you know, maybe you get some ladies in your crew. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh, (laughs) I said, who's your DP? And it was like, oh, this guy, Stefan, I I really love. I was like, you know what? 
I'm in the crew. I get it. You should be loyal to your crew. But what if Stefan gets another gig? Are you adverse to hiring more women? And he was like, oh, he was like, no, not at all. I, I just don't really know where to look. Mm-hmm. And I said, I got you covered. I got ladies <laughs> for you. Right. And I kept feeding him women. And then like any good director, he completely forgot that I had suggested this Mm -hmm. and it became his idea, right? That's (laughs) what all good directors do. They like take a good idea and they're like, oh yeah, you know, anyway. So that's why I had to do the Google spreadsheet because Tom, I needed to feed Tom after I'd given him like a nice heart, like not a mean hard time, but a little bit of a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's my friend and I can't like go back on, you know, telling him he needs to hire more women right. I need to help him. And that's really a lot of why we started the crew list was because um, I needed to feed him. He needed women all over because he was shooting the women's March. You might remember there's some shots of the women's March mm-hmm. all over the world. Right. That's the, that's from the cinematographers I sent his way. Oh, nice. You know? Yeah. And I also, I had a lunch in LA where I invited him and a bunch of other people Um, That was really the genesis of the hire these women lunches where we would invite people who are looking to hire women in their crew. We would invite them to lunch and make sure they connected. And he like literally hired, like he hired El Schneider from meeting her in that event. And, you know, and he's hired a bunch of other DPs and he he keeps using our crew list. And now he's actually an advisory board member. So Tom being an overachiever, Mm -hmm. you know, we ask that people have 40 to 60% women above and below the line in all their departments. Tom being an overachiever, he got to at least 70%. Wow. He told me that he was really, really mad because he was close to 90, but some of these actresses have men hairdressers. She was really right. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, Tom, it's okay. You've done good. It's fine. It's fine. We're allowed to have male hairdressers. It's fine. Um, And and we don't want to take over every job in Hollywood. We want it to be parody, you know, like the world. All right, we're going to take a break from the podcast so that we can pay some bills. Tired of uploading content to multiple systems? Now you can work smarter, not harder, with Sony's C Media Cloud. Get blazing fast uploads, secure, reliable backup, seamless, simple sharing, and real-time collaboration in a single, easy-to-use cloud service. With C, the possibilities are virtually endless. C allows your team to securely and reliably share, organize, review, and collaborate on, and deliver professional media files all in a flash. You'll find C's powerful built-in collaboration tools and apps are designed specifically for media professionals to work more efficiently. And C's creative suite of apps and tools can empower broadcast and production teams to collaborate on videos in real time, all within a trusted workspace. Let Sony's C Media Cloud help transform how your content moves across the entire media cycle, from camera to post to final cut faster. Learn more about C and book your free demo at SonyMCS.com. That's Sony, Amazon Mary, Season Charlie, S as in Sam.com. Now, back to the podcast. How would you grade the current state of parity for women and gender nonconforming people in the industry? Well, we have work to do, mm-hmm. clearly. We have a lot of work to do. Um, but I think it's better, absolutely better. I think that the conversation has shifted. Mm-hmm. It has gone 
from people saying literally to my face, there are no women to hire. There are no women cinematographers. Mm-hmm. There are no, there are no women directors. And if they, there are any, they are too low budget and they don't know how to use the gear and they, this, like any excuse, find an excuse, right. you know, it was there. Um, just all kinds of ridiculousness, but it has changed. It has really shifted. The conversation is, you know, we need to hire more women and bring them up uh, much like we have traditionally done for the men. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you look at grips, it's not like you come out of the womb knowing how to tie knots. Like right. nobody, you don't wake up just knowing you have some uncle, <laughs> you know, or friend or somebody who's going to take you by the shoulder at lunch and teach you how to tie knots at lunch you know, and help. So that's what we want for women as well. And people have begun to recognize that that's really how the business works. And it's that kind of mentorship, as it were, where you're taking your wayward nephew Mm -hmm. uh, and teaching them things at lunch. You do that with your wayward niece and do that at lunch as well. And that's really shifted the industry. There are a lot more women getting into the unions as well, whereas they were quite closed for a while. More women getting into these big very fancy organizations like the um, the ASC, mm-hmm. right? Are there not very many women in the ASC? Well, there wasn't, mm-hmm. but they've really done their level best to start changing that. They've got some incredible women who've joined in the last year or two. I mean, just remarkable, stellar cinematographers right. who have joined who are women or non-binary, you yeah. know, like Ava Burkowski, who um, was the cinematographer for uh, Insecure, mm-hmm. right? Which trended on Twitter for weeks talking about how nobody had really shot black skin properly before Ava Burkowski, <laughs> right? It's like, right. you know, like this incredible video from Mike, you know, MIC, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if you've seen that one. They talk about how, you know, the Shirley's and how people hadn't really thought about how to make black skin look gorgeous right and right they've kind of changed that game like she joined and kira kelly who does a lot of ava duvernay's movies mm-hmm. uh, q tran quian tran who did palm palm springs yeah i love that movie made she did made as well mm-hmm. she was a dp and she she was a director on that as well and she's super brilliant and um also tommy maddox who's an african-american guy he right. He joined. He just won an ASC award. So there. So there are changes. You know, we have to recognize the talent and not be so blinded by thinking that you have to look like an old white guy to have talent. Because that was kind of the Mm -hmm. vision. Right. And those are the people who got the jobs. Right. And it took people like Ava DuVernay and and programs like HBO Access, which is run by my friend Kimberly Browning, or it was. These are the programs that really let people sparkle and show other folks how talented they are and get them into a broader social circle. Cause that's a lot of the problem too. It's like, if you're not in the right social circle, people don't know you and they're not, they're not willing to hire you. And they come up with ideas about who you are and what your level of talent is right. as opposed to actually having a real idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to get your opinion about something. So a few years yeah. ago, and this is again on my radio film school podcast. Uh, I did this episode. I did a women in film episode, and it was like a three part series. This was the third part, and it was a combination of interviews with women filmmakers I had done, and then I grabbed some clips on YouTube from 
one of the Hollywood Reporter roundtables of women executives. And so they had, I, I can't remember all their names offhand, but you know, some of the, 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 the women studio, the few women studio execs were at the table. And uh-huh. uh, one of them was saying how, was telling a story how women look at things differently than men look at things. And she had, you know, she was telling the story or it's kind of like a joke about, you know, if a woman were to give the, you know, speech that Jack Kennedy had given, ask not what you can do for your country. Now ask what the country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. She was saying, if a woman had done that, it would be like, you know, well, I have this idea for something that we can do for our country. Oh. That we're, right. And then uh, I took, I grabbed a clip. I've, I've heard that. Yeah. And, I've, and I grabbed this clip from Cheryl Sandberg, who's the chief operating officer of Facebook. And, and she was telling the story about the way men go about applying for jobs and how they think of themselves. And basically a man, if a man feels like he has 60 to 70% of the prerequisites, he'll apply, but a woman mm-hmm. has to feel like she, if she doesn't have a hundred percent, she won't even apply. Mm-hmm. And then I was interviewing this one woman who was like a celebrated filmmaker, an award winner. And she was telling the story how she didn't know why I was reaching out to her to be on the show. Like she didn't feel like she was essentially like she was worthy to be on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. Her name was Elaine McMillian Sheldon. And if you've seen her work, you'd be like, she's amazing. And she was telling the story of how one of her friends, who's this black woman, her new rule that she was making that every room that she walked into, she was going to act like a man. And she specifically was going to oh, act right. like a white man. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so at the- you know what Ava calls that? She calls it getting your white boy on. <laughs> so, here's the que- <laughs> so here's the question for you. I'm sitting here. At the end of that episode, I said, based on all these things that- these women are saying one of the things that women need to do in order to bring parody Hollywood. I gave three things. One of the three things was they need to think and act like men. And my friend Yolanda, who I've had on this show and she's a co-host for me on another show, she took offense to that. And her whole thing was she doesn't think a woman should have to be less of a woman like we should be able to accept women for how women are and they shouldn't need to have to act like a quote unquote man. And I was curious what your take on that, that this idea of acting or thinking like a man as a woman in order to get ahead in this business. I guess it kind of depends on what we quantify as acting like a man versus acting like a woman. So like the mm-hmm. thing about women feeling like they have, I mean, it's absolutely true that we do have to work twice as hard to get half the respect. So mm-hmm. that didn't come out of nowhere, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That whole idea that we have to be 100, 110% qualified to not get the job, mm-hmm. that hasn't come out of nowhere because true. so many of us have trained underling guys who then bounced ahead of us and we're like, what happened? Yeah, I have the job. I have the chops. I've done my time. And this nincompoop is failing upwards. Hello, I'm sorry, but Donald Trump against Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Right. We had this overqualified woman who had done her time. You know, she was a lawyer. She was head of the State Department. I mean, she did. She had the chops. And then this nincompoop, who was an absolute ass. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, did he win? Honestly, debatable. Mm-hmm. But no, bottom line, we had four years of pain because of people's misogyny. Mm-hmm. Like the, the bullshit you heard coming out of people's mouths about Hillary Clinton, they 
tied themselves into knots as to why they wouldn't give her the presidency as opposed to Donald Trump, who is clearly a psychopath, like a (laughs) sociopathic, anti-democratic, horrible human being, like just tying themselves into knots about why they preferred him over her. And the bottom line was they didn't trust the woman to do the job. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where we were in 2016, 2015. And hopefully we have learned from that egregious mistake in our everyday lives across the board. Like why Shirley Chisholm, this lady over my shoulder, for those of you in the studio audience, she was the first woman to run for, you know, for the presidency, for for Democrats. The Democratic nomination. Now, she was an unbelievable woman, unbelievable politician, good heart, brilliant, great speaker. Like she should have been our first president. I'm sorry. She should have absolutely hands down, no conversation, been our first woman president, Mm. period, end of report. Um, But that's just me. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so that women have had such a struggle to convince people that you know, this shouldn't be a gender issue. Just hire us Mm -hmm. is not, you know, I mean, I learned this at a young age. My parents told me since I was a little kid, they're like, look, just work hard, be the best you can be. They're like, we don't care what job you pick. As long as you're the best at it, you have to get on a roll, you know, like that was the mindset. And then they're like, and you'll succeed. And then I get out into the real world as a teenager, you know, like, Mm-hmm. It's working in nightclubs and finding that people are so discriminatory against me strictly because I'm female. Like I had a job as a club DJ mm-hmm. and I didn't get that job until I overproved myself. I was literally told to my face, girls are not DJs. Right. Girls. I'm serious. We're, to- yeah. we're not talking about lifting heavy sandbags. It's just DJing. Right? right. It's like, it was back when we had records. So you had to beat match and right. I learned how to beat match. And to play records from my mentor had worked at Studio 54. So it's like I had the pet. Yeah. And I came in every day and I practiced and whatever. And eventually they discovered that I was actually pretty good. And before you know it, I had four nights a week. But it's like they still paid me half as much as the guys who were not as good as me. And they tried to lower my pay. (laughs) It's like, come on, people. And they tried to take away my record allowance. It was just bullshit after bullshit after bullshit so before you know it i'm changing sectors because it was so untenable and i'm finding that i'm going from the frying pan into the fryer and all my girlfriends all my friends who have ambition have had the same the same experience i'm gonna say i'm, I'm gonna say most of maybe not all of them because things have gotten better the younger right. ones they're kind of like oh really but the women of my age They're all like, they've gone from job to job to job. I have a friend who worked at Apple Mm -hmm. and she trained these nincompoop guys and they jumped ahead of her. Mm. And, and when I say nincompoop, like not clearly, I don't mean all guys are nincompoops. These guys were nincompoops (laughs) in that they would bring like legal things. So she'd be like, you can't do that. They'd be like, yeah, we want to do it anyway. She'd be like, can't do that. And they would go and do it. And then they would wonder why it all fell apart. She's like, cause I told you, you can't do that. Right. Right. But their bravado made everybody go, sure, we'll do that. And then they're like, oh, it fell apart and wonder why. And it's like, yeah, it's because you let them jump ahead of my friend and not listen to her when she was talking common sense. Mm. You know, it's like when we did same thing, we didn't listen to Hillary. I mean, when you listen to Hillary during those debates and like weirdo Donald Trump, like sniffing her behind her and everything being creepy and you hear her saying things, she's right. Right. She's right. Yet we pilloried her at the time, if you got, go back and look at like the Facebook and the 
you know, the conversations we had with our relatives and the, the thought pieces, the think pieces on, on the news are just gross. You know, when she talked about two baskets, you know, about the deplorables, Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a large section of our country that's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) There's a large swath of our country that's deplorable and we don't know quite what to do with them. (laughs) It's like, it's a quandary. So do you think women should act like men to get it? <laughs> okay, going yeah. back to that, should we yeah. act like men? I and you started to say, it depends what you mean by act like men. It does. I mean, if you mean, do we need to be aggressive? Is that what you mean? or do you? That's mean a good question. Be, like, what does that mean? Does act mean? Like, I think in the context of like that particular episode, the typical way a man would think in terms of how they go about presenting themselves, mm-hmm. not waiting for themselves to have a hundred percent of the of the qualifications, the way they put their confidence out, the way they say whatever's on their mind, the way they carry themselves. I think that specifically is what it means. Like when you think about okay. the stereotypical way in which a man carries himself in the world versus a woman. I think what we need to do is stop treating women and girls like they're second class citizens and treat them like we treat little boys. Mm-hmm. I think that will go a long way to changing things mm-hmm. um, in the short term and the long run, because I think it isn't innately a feminine aspect mm-hmm. to think that you're not half as good because I certainly didn't mm-hmm. out of the gate. I like, I acted like a man as right. it were. And then I was just like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to play records, but I'll learn. Yeah. <laughs> I learned how to play and I got my chops, but they still treated me like a quote unquote girl, meaning that they didn't treat me with equality to the guys around me. And they tried to denigrate me and all the nonsense I went through beyond just, you know, the pay and all that, but people seriously reinforced that. And I found that throughout my my career. So yeah, should women, you know, I'm not saying that women should go in not knowing a job Mm -hmm. that I think is dumb for anybody. In fact, I think it's a bad strategy for guys. Like I think when guys go in with too much confidence on a job that they're not qualified for, I think it harms the job. You know, it harms everybody. And honestly, here's the difference. Okay. This is the dirty little secret. Everybody covers for the guys when they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Mm -hmm. Often people will cover for the guys. They will trip up the women. They will go out of their way because the expectation is that women are going to fail. So people will help her fail. Right. Whereas guys will very often get covered for it. And women get relegated to doing the work without getting the credit. Mm-hmm. And I've had men try to steal my work many times. Mm. And I, I don't know how they got the 411 that that's acceptable or something that they can do. Mm-hmm. But then they would get mad at me when I wouldn't let them steal my work. (laughs) You know what I mean? But do you know that for film composing, did you know that women have been writing for a lot of these film composers, ghostwriting their work for like decades and not getting credit? So when it's true. So like when so when I hear something like that, Mm -hmm. the cynic might say, Well, how do you know that? I know people who are very candid with me, and I won't tell you who. Of course not. Yeah. (laughs) But I know people who are very candid who have told me that they have worked for some very famous men Mm -hmm. in the film industry one way or another. I mean, and this is across the board, like like Alma Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock's wife, very much influenced his work. You know what I mean? Marsha Lucas was the heart. They call her the heart 
behind the Star Wars film. Mm. So all the good Star Wars films, you and I know what they are. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Marsha was his editor. And when they divorced, all of his films kind of, in my mind, they kind of, she was the one who was like, oh yeah, you got to kill Mm Obi-Wan. And he was like, I do. She was like, oh yeah, you got to kill him. And this is why. And so she like understood the storytelling and she kept it from getting too sappy because, you know, they got a little bit, Mm -hmm. they lost their way a little bit. Um, you know, episode one, two, and three. Yeah. So once you lost Marsha, you know, so it makes you wonder yeah. who yeah. is really driving the ship? Who is the, I'm, I'm not saying he's not a talented guy. He certainly is, but I am going to say Marsha, like she made the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, like a lot of these editors, women were the editors for a very long time because it was considered yeah. like sewing, right. you know, or like, you know, it wasn't considered an artistic craft. And once people got wind of it being an artistic craft, that's when men tried to take it over. That was one of the big eye openers for me when I learned that at the beginning of the industry, most editors were women. And at some point it flipped as to where you saw that in. It became prestigious. Yeah. That's what it was because the guys wanted the prestige. And with the prestige comes the money. And I think women do need to shift. Um, and everybody, it's not just women, it's an everybody thing where we all need to shift our perception of what prestige means mm-hmm. and why women should be given that prestige as well. Yeah. Yeah. One of the points you made earlier, which I think is spot on, is at what age we start teaching our children these things. And what always comes to mind when I think about this with regards to women, I think it was a Dove commercial, but it was like the Run Like a Woman campaign where they Mm -hmm. asked a bunch of little girls, you know, 12, 10 years old, to um, what does it mean to run like a girl? And they were running really, really hard. And I remember that they're running as as hard as they can, and and their arms are going the way they run. And then they'd ask grown women to run like a girl. And then they would flap their arms and kind of be kind of dainty mm-hmm. when they ran. And it was like, at some point, little girls are taught that this is what it means to be a girl and this is what it means to be a boy or man or, or whatnot. And so it's, yeah, starting early is definitely something that makes a difference. Absolutely. And I saw that myself mm-hmm. as a teenager, right? Like yeah. I had this view of who I was. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I became a woman and got into the, into the work, it was really getting into the workforce. Right. That's what knocks the shit out of you is getting into the workforce and the guys and everybody. Every, I mean, it was a, a systemic problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. just the guys. It was like an everybody thing where you just knock women down. I like to end my interviews with a, a speed round. Mm. So these are fun questions that gives insight into the person. Uh, question number one is, what's your guilty pleasure, a TV or movie? Oh, wow. Okay. I've got a lot. I like, <laughs> I'm not you surprised. Know, as you know, I've got a lot of guilty pleasure movies and TV shows. Yeah. So, you know, I love really good movies. Mm-hmm. I love really bad movies. Yeah. And I love movies that are so bad, they're so good. So, like, guilty pleasure movie. Um. Oh, my God. I love this movie called uh, liquid sky mm-hmm. i haven't heard of that one <laughs> it's like, oh my god it's terrible uh, but it's but it's wonderful at the same time yeah it's so good <laughs> it was filmed by some russian dissidents mm-hmm. and it's just crazy it's weird and crazy and i love that film um but i'd say like other guilty pl- oh scandal i really like loved scandal mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know it's it's just good 
you know, dishy fun that I really love. Um, I, let's see, I love the hunger and Videodrome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great. I, right? I love Cronenberg films. I think they're really good and they're weird oh, and they're so twisty. Weird. And sometimes they're disjointed and I don't know what the hell is going on, but I love it. I can't help it. I still love it. Oh, I saw a really good show. I started to watch it and I didn't think I would like it, but I, my family, we have a three episode rule. So like, we'll try anything three right. episodes and if we hate it, then we can put it right. down. Cause it usually takes one episode of exposition and then an episode to kind of get to know people. Another ep- episode to kind of get it moving, you know, if it, and if by the third, yeah, if it doesn't work, then we're like, bye. Um, anyway, I really liked a show, a Russian show, called better than us that was on netflix mm-hmm. which was about like ai and um an ai that kind of crosses i mean doesn't quite cross the uncanny valley right but gets really close and i think she's i believe in the next season she will probably cross over hmm. what was the last thing that you saw that surprised you that's a good question because that is very very rare i usually can nail a show pretty quickly mm-hmm. because of all the visual language. I can usually tell pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I thought Squid Game was really good. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of knew, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, but I kind of knew like a few episodes in when it looks like things are going one way and then it doesn't, mm-hmm. like it had to go the way it did. Yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess the very, very ending, maybe I didn't quite see that coming. Right, right. I would say the thing with the old guy yeah. like that I might maybe didn't see coming so much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I kind of thought it did. I kind of expected it to be that way because of the prominence of the character and because of how they shot it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, how they don't show you a particular incident that happens. Right, and right. Then, you know, I don't want to give it away as yeah. you, as you yeah. know. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I think also maybe Coda hmm. um, surprised me in some ways because I expected it to be a little bit sentimental and I don't really like cheap sentimentality, mm-hmm. um, but I'd heard it was very good. So I was right. like, okay, I'll give it a whirl. And I was surprised. I mean, I thought it was the best film of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Hands down. Yeah. Like there was no other film that came even close. Yeah. So I thought that was quite a revelation. Did you see Power of the Dog? I did. What did you and think that of surprised it? me. I liked it. You did like it. I did like it. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, for me, Jane Campion, I like a lot of her work, but some of it, I'm, it takes me a while to get it, you know, much mm-hmm. like some Kubrick's films. It's like on first watching a lot of Kubrick films, like I don't get, it, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after you've seen them a couple of times, it's like, oh, wow, this is really brilliant. I love them. Interesting. This is just brilliant. And with Power of the Dog, I liked how incredibly subtle what happens with the comeuppance, like how that comes about, Mm -hmm. how if you weren't paying attention, you would have easily missed it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if you're watching, you are in, I mean, it's not a joke, it's terrible, but you're in on what's happening Mm -hmm. and you realize it after it's happened. Yeah. Like once it's happened, you're like, oh, damn, that was devious. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, like, is that, did dad die in a similar way? Mm-hmm. Like, did the son actually have something to do? Or the mm-hmm. is that why they had to get where they, so in many ways I felt like, oh, I need to go back and rewatch it. Um, but keep in mind, I also like European movies and I like, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have to have a really fast 
paced film to really get it and enjoy it. There were some moments in it that I did not love, like the scarf thing with Benedict Cumberbatch. I was like, oh boy, that's a little indulgent. Mm-hmm. But, but I appreciated the story. I appreciated the themes. And I'm not a massive fan of Westerns. So I appreciated that it was a different take mm-hmm. on a Western. It didn't have a lot of the same tropes, like the Gabby Hayes right, right. Know, character and the... Maybe I need to give it a second chance because when I because I saw it at a screening at Netflix, Mm -hmm. which was cool. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't screening, I think I would have walked out like I was just not because it was bad. Like it was beautifully shot, beautifully directed. It was just so boring. And I feel like I almost felt like I'm uncouth for saying that. Like, but it, it just it really was. Um, before I let you go, every Thursday you do something cool on Clubhouse. Tell me a little bit about that before, mm-hmm. before I let you go. So every Thursday we have a movie club called Popcorn for Breakfast. Yeah. And lately we've been comparing and contrasting different kinds of films. Mm-hmm. And we try to find films that might complement each other where we can have a good intellectual conversation and really dissect the films, how they're made any trivia, how we feel about the films. And it seems to be really attracting some um, real movie geeks. You yeah. know, people who, like me, are just obsessed with movies, who really love to talk about movies, mm-hmm. um, which has been great fun. And we get together every Thursday at 5.30 Pacific Standard Time. So basically, it's cocktail hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hang out with your buddies. Yeah. And we pick the films where we let you know what the films are at the end of the film where, you know, for the coming week. Right. So we've got the assignment. Yeah. It's a little bit like a book club. Yeah, it is. It's like a book right? club. It's fun. The few times I'm able to do it, it's, they're fun. Yeah. And, it's and so I'll, much fun. Yeah, I'll have links to it in the show notes and the website for Women in Media. So basically, Women in Media is a great resource if you want to find women and non-binary is above mm-hmm. and below the line or just below the line. Above and below the line, but it's also good for our events. A lot of our events are open to all genders. Our members get a discount, but anybody, not all the events, but a lot of them are. And we're very explicit. We'll say this is all, all genders are welcome. Mm -hmm. And we would love to have more men come to these events because I think they have so much value. Yeah. People can learn so much from these events. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And what's the URL? I'll have a link, but. It's women N media. So women, the letter N media.com. Media. Yeah. Uh, well, Tim, as you know, you get talk forever. Uh, Did you want to talk about the slap? Yeah, let's talk. So like, maybe this will be a bonus, uh, a bonus <laughs> segment after the credits. Okay. I appreciate you and our friendship and thank you for coming on. This was cool. It was fun to talk about this with you. Yeah. Yeah. I we'll do it. Talking it movies with yeah. You. Yeah. I'll have you come on my Dungeons and Direct show. I will happily come on. I think you'd be the first white woman on there. I would be honored. I want to thank Tama for joining me on the show. You can find additional links and resources, including link to women in media and that database all in the show notes or the blog post for this episode at provideocoalition.com. Project 180 is a production of Blade Runner Media, and it's part of Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode is produced, written, and hosted by yours truly, Ron Dawson. Editing and mixing by Maria Passingham. You can follow me on Twitter at Blade Runner. That's Runner with an O. And you can follow me on Instagram at Blurred Runner. 
Follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at Simply Pro Video. That's it for now. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. See you in two weeks. And stay tuned for my post-credits discussion about that slap with Timma. Take care. Your thoughts on the slap. So, yes, violence is bad. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair to say. Acting like an unruly, you know, child on the schoolyard is also mm-hmm. <laughs> unbecoming, shall we say? Yeah. Jada Pinkett doesn't really need defending. She's a grown woman and she's a very, you know, mm-hmm. she is never afraid to speak her mind. No. Um, that being said, I think we treat our celebrities like a punching bag very often. Mm-hmm. I think that even though Will Smith was absolutely wrong for I mean, he put he cast the Paul over the show mm-hmm. and people didn't know how to react. And you hear people as you watch it, like poor Anthony Hopkins is like he doesn't quite know what to say. And he's like blowing it. And right. it's like it's freaking Anthony Hopkins. It's yeah. Like, oh, God. It's so sad. And but that being said, I think the way we treat celebrities, I think is a little unfair. Like we think that we own them body and soul. And I think that's wrong. Mm hmm. And that they should be our punching bags. I also think they're human beings and I think it's wrong to treat them with, you know, like, yes, if you're in the public eye, you do get a bit more ribbing because of that lofty position. But this is what I really think beyond all of that. Mm -hmm. I think he is a reflection of where we are as a society, Mm. right? When you have supermarket workers who do not want to come into work because they're afraid that they're going to get physically hurt mm-hmm. because somebody doesn't want to wear a mask. Yeah. Right. And, and they're, they're merely doing their job and you have people quitting these public facing jobs. We need to think about this on a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. So yes, Will Smith was wrong, but I think we're like a lot of people are kind of Will Smith. And it's a reflection of where we are as a society. And I don't think you can point a finger at Will Smith and not think about some of the things you might have, or me, or, Mm -hmm. you know, any of us might have done that maybe wasn't kosher in that regard, where we got really heated and angry. I mean, I've almost had physical altercations with people at Home Depot. Like, we need to think about who we want to be as a society in America. And if we're all going to say, Oh, Will Smith was, you know, bad, or this is bad, you know, now it makes black people look violent or whatever. It's like, no, it's Americans. (laughs) When you talk to people from outside of America, they think we're bananas that we're violent because we kind of are like got guns everywhere. Right. Right. And we keep loosening the gun laws and we keep having more guns. We storm our capitals. You know what I mean? It's like, so if we can storm the capital and those people, I mean, we do have some going to jail, but if we have, if we're not taking these things as seriously as we really should, Mm -hmm. then you can't look at Will Smith and go neener, neener. You really can't. Yeah. I think, you know, some of the interesting commentary I've heard as it relates to Hollywood is Jim Carrey was on an interview saying he felt like, you know, Hollywood were were saps and somewhat hypocritical and basically letting this man like walk off the stage when he, you know, assaults someone and that basically and they and then give him a standing ovation, oh. you know, afterwards. Like 
Oh, you mean his cheery? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm here to protect. It's like, oh man, like Jada needs your protection. That was insulting. <laughs> I think, I truly think he, one, I think he, through personal trauma, he was triggered by that comment. Yeah. And yeah, I, think I think him breaking down at the podium was real. Like, I almost don't know, like, he didn't almost know what to say. Like, it's sad and unfortunate because. For him to talk about being a vessel of love after he just, you know, assaulted Sorry. someone 30, 40 minutes earlier. But I've heard other people point out that this is hardly the worst offense to happen at the Oscars. One story that brings up, comes up a lot is John Wayne having to be held back from attacking the Native American women who declined the Oscar on behalf of Marlon Brando that year. Um until the way yeah. indigenous people were treated yeah. in the movies was changed. You know, this idea that on one hand, there are a lot of people in the Hollywood are more left-leaning and liberal, and they have all these ideals that they trumpet, but then they give standing ovations to people who assault people. And so there's this dark side that sometimes comes out. Do you think... When do you think Will should lose his Oscar? And if not, do you think any kind of discipline should be given? And if so, what? Like, what would you think would be appropriate? I don't know if he should lose his Oscar. That I'm not sure about. Yeah, I, think I don't think so. He, I don't think so. I mean, I think he, um, he made a very bad mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, it definitely, it was very selfish. More than anything, it was really selfish. Yeah. He didn't think about how the rest of the night might go. And there were so, I mean, documentaries were right after that. Like, why would you feel a thunder? And that was my favorite documentary film. I love Summer of Soul. And I didn't see any of Questlove's speech. I'll need to look it up again. And um, and the thing is, ironically, there were a lot of firsts this year, including Will's first Oscar win, that are all overshadowed by this. Like, whenever you talk about this year's Oscars, it's not going to be about the first time Will won it's not going to be about the first time a openly queer woman of color won for acting. It's not going to be about the first documentary feature slash animation slash international. It's going to be, that was the year Will slapped Chris. Like that's what people are going to remember this Oscars for. You're right. But that being said, it's debatable whether that was bad for ratings, right? Oh, of because, course. Yeah. Oh, Right? Because America has become one big Maury Povich show. Oh, yeah. I don't think anyone debates whether or not it's good for ratings. It's whether, or not it's good for, whether or not it's good for the industry is another question. The, I think those are uh, separate. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely separate. <laughs> That's for sure. So, I mean, the Academy producers are probably like, yeah. hmm. I really yeah, like the hosts. I thought they were great. I thought they were. They brought back sort of like the old flavor that the old Oscars used to have. I thought they were funny for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to see them come back again. I hope so too. And yeah. that was controversial on right. its own. I remember having three women do it, which is kind of bonkers. I thought they were terrific. Yeah, I that, agree. And funny. They were funny, they were funny, right? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of hullabaloo over Amy Schumer's bit with Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. You know. Because people didn't think that Kirsten Dunst was in on the joke. And she was. Like, it, she was. She was. It, it was so dry, nobody got the joke. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't land very well. No, uh, but I mean that that speaks more to the audience, I right. think, than to the actual joke. You know what? I think it would have played funnier if Jesse and Kirsten didn't play it 
as if it was real. Like if they just went along with it and just laughed at it, I think that would have been funnier. So it, it was like this line between awkward. Like I was halfway expecting Jesse to slap her like Will had done. <laughs> <laughs> that that, that would have been good. Or okay. pretend to Hello. slap her. Or be, <laughs> we said, you know, that's my wife, don't you? Like, Right, exactly. Um, yeah, get your butt out of my effing wife's seat. I, right. <laughs> okay, now we can we can we can quarterback Monday morning quarterback. Right, Monday morning quarterback the Oscars. Right? It's easy for us to say. <laughs> Do you think that maybe it was affected by the Will Smith thing? Oh, for sure. A lot of people, right, because the vibe was already kind of it. it was the vibe was already kind of weird. Awkward. And so, yeah. to do this thing where you're disrespecting somebody else's wife. And and for me as a black man, it kind of felt like, okay, great. Now we have a juxtaposition of how a black man responds when his wife is disrespected oh. versus how a white man responds when right. his wife is. Although, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, oh, dear. It's, oh, my. One thing that surprised me about the reaction, I was surprised by how many people like stood up for Will and thought what he did was actually commendable and, for lack of a better, and right. Like, I thought it was a no-brainer. You don't do that. And then everyone's going to think that this is something you don't do. I was really shocked at the number of people who were actually praising him. And there's a lot of complexity, within, especially within the black community, there's a lot of complexities about, especially what black women were going through coming off a week of Kentaji Brown Jackson's oh, yeah. circus. And then yeah. women, black women and black hair is a very touchy subject. Oh, yeah. Which a lot of... A lot of black women who said Chris should have known because he did a whole documentary about it, which I actually thought was a good documentary. And so, you know, there's all those complexities. So that was probably the last thing that I saw that surprised me was the reaction to uh, the number of people who were just, it's, it almost feels like it's 50 50. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Where half the people felt like what he did was right. Like, and half the people feeling like, it wasn't right. So I've never seen well, so much divisiveness within families since the election, it feels like, <laughs> over a slap. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reality is that neither one of them are right. I mean, that's the bottom yeah. line. Neither one of them were right. Like, the joke was bad. All right. So here's the thing. The joke was bad, but if we can go under the assumption that he did not know she had alopecia. Which you can't. I didn't know she had alopecia. I think... Everyone goes under this assumption that just because she has millions of followers and she just think that the whole world knows. Like, if Will Smith had been putting out videos about having alopecia, I think it would have been different. But I didn't know. Like, I, I honestly believe if Chris knew that she had alopecia, he would not have poked fun at her if he knew. And I think the assumption, I think for us to assume he knew just because she's been talking about it like like i said i didn't know i think there are enough people i think there's a good enough chance he didn't know to assume that he knew and told the joke anyway versus like if he didn't know then it's just a bad joke that didn't land like it wasn't a mean-spirited joke because she looked great and got it and he was comparing her to a beautiful badass female character you know if if he compared her to elmer fudd or something that would be one sure and so when you look at those two things, personally, I don't feel like what he did was wrong. I feel like it wasn't a great joke. And if you assume he didn't know, then he's doing what comedians do, which is roast right. honorees, personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Um, I mean, if he didn't know, hopefully somebody was vetting his jokes. <laughs> but I think I think I read that it wasn't it was off script. The joke was off script. Yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. you're right. Which is, you yeah. know, not uncommon. Sure. And That's it kind of makes sense because the way when he said it, it kind of felt like 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 he wasn't reading the, the prompt or anything. Like I felt like the joke about um Javier Bardem uh winning the Oscar. I felt like that was scripted. And I then um uh, and then I think he just kind of went off script with the, you know, hey Jada, good to see you. Uh G. I. Jane too, whatever. So Yeah. Um but maybe yeah. either way, I mean a tremendous over- I think it was quite the overreaction by that Will and Jada. But but by the same token, I mean it's almost I guess like having a joke about owls or something like that or cancer. It's like That's why I don't that's why I don't think like he a, knew. Like I don't think Yeah, maybe. I don't think he knew. But do, do you think the slap you think it will have a uh a negative impact on Will's career? Or is he big enough where Oh no. Yeah, I, don't think, <laughs> I so. think it's gonna help his career. Did, you yeah. kidding? Like what is he's probably got like eight films in pre-production and he'll be making the next Michael Bay macho blow shit up thing any day. Right. You know, he'll be anou- we'll be announcing all kinds of, you know, yeah. macho yeah. films. I mean, that sometimes is brand. He does the tender roles like this mm-hmm. one and then he does like the big blow ups like bad boys. Yeah, bad boys for so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he'll never run out of those films. And there's, like you say, like there's a large sector of the population who are like, yeah, he defended his woman. He did the right thing. And um, and they will absolutely put their money down, right? Yeah, and that's will, true. Will has, yep. Will's had a long career. He started as a rap star, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Will has no lack of talent or ability. Yeah, I think they need to, um, they would be remiss at some point not to have a red table talk episode assuming chris would even want to come on but even if he doesn't uh i read table talk where jada and will hash this out they would be remiss. i agree at some point maybe you know maybe too soon too raw now i agree i I think there should be some kind of coming together yeah you know what i mean because now now they're all about i mean the spin is now oh we're all about healing it's the season to be healing Mm -hmm. and it's like Okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, they're going to spin this. Believe me, they will spin it just fine, and everybody will make more money. Make trust more money. Me. I know. Will... Everyone's worried about these multimillionaires. Yeah, they will be fine. Believe me. Yeah. Something I thought was a little bit criminal. I felt like there were more women that we should have had much better parity. Mm-hmm. There should have been a lot more women nominated. That Maggie Gyllenhaal was not nominated is kind of icky. I'm all for having best woman director, best women cinematographer, oh, et cetera, are, really? et cetera. Yeah. I am. And I'll tell you, I'm, and just for a limited time, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. When people aren't forced to watch the movies, they don't watch the movies very mm-hmm. often. They don't watch all the films. And a lot of these like old dinosaur guys, they don't watch the films by women directors. Right. Again, mm-hmm. they won't watch them. Whereas if they kind of have to, because they have to vote on them, right. they will watch them. And those nominations, they really do mean a lot. They re- they mean a lot. Oh, of course. As much as getting the win, the nominations are very, very important. Yeah. So you know why we have a Best Actor and Best Actress award? Mm-mm. Do you know why we have that? I don't that? know why, yeah. Because at the beginning of the Academy Awards, the women were the box office draw. You'd like Betty Davis and... Catherine Hepburn mm-hmm. and Norma Shearer, Rosalind Russell, these mega, mega stars. 
And the guys didn't shine as brightly. And they were afraid that the men would not win any awards, Hmm. which is why they created a best actor award. So the men could get some acting awards. That's crazy. It's true. It's crazy. But that's why. But that's why we don't have it for any other departments. Anyway, I do not have a problem with having gendered down the line. It would be like the longest award show ever. One thing I would predict, though, like if they did do that, I could see gender nonconforming community being upset because then where would they fit? I guess that would be a larger conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly I'm not a member of the Academy, so I don't get voting rights anyway. But I think because or maybe hopefully things will change enough that our default thinking won't be director is a guy with a white guy Mm -hmm. with a baseball cap and a goatee, right? Like that's (laughs) the default image, you know, in our heads, as opposed to like Catherine Bigelow or, you know, Sean Hedder or whatever. It's like, they're too pretty and too dainty to possibly be a director, which of course is nonsense because we all know that directors sit in a chair all day. It's it's not like they're, they don't, you don't need some massive strength to be a director, right? You need stamina. That's a fact because you might have a really long day, but that isn't, I mean, you know, how many guys can do three days of, of labor, Mm -hmm. right? Like birthing a baby, like none. Believe me, I've been in labor for three days and no man on this planet (laughs) would be able to withstand that nonsense. But all joking aside, um, there's no reason that should be the image. And I think that is changing. I would like to see it change faster and having some of those categories, the ones that really need it. I wouldn't mind seeing them gendered. The ones that don't need it so much, like mm-hmm. maybe hair and makeup and production design and costume, you know, just keep them as is. But the ones where people need to kind of like shift their minds, I'm not saying it would happen. I'm not saying it's really a good idea. Right. But in my own fantasy world, if we had best male cinematographer, best female cinematographer, those women would get their due where they didn't for decades. Right. And people would be forced to have better hiring practices. So the hope is that more women will get the jobs. And, and that's the other thing. People would kick the can back and forth. So people would say, oh, well, she doesn't have a track record. I don't know her, so I can't hire her. Oh, she's never been hired. You know, they go back and forth. Oh, it's the studio's fault because they haven't hired women, so we can't nominate them. Oh, it's the filmmaker's fault because they're not hiring the women. So we, you know what I mean? It just mm-hmm. went back and forth. And now people really don't have those excuses. And they're also, um, you know, just I think people are beginning to hire better and they're beginning to hire more women in those creative below the line roles, giving them better jobs as they move up the film industry. You know, so that so they can get the nominations, you know, that Tammy Riker didn't get a nomination for One Night in Miami. Criminal. Mm -mm -mm. That was wrong. That was so wrong. And I heard so many bullshit excuses. I heard people say, oh, well, it only took place in one room. I'm like, no, it didn't. It took place in, I mean, it took place in a in a ring mm-hmm. for one. They went outside. And honestly, there were Academy Awards for a movie called Room. Mm-hmm. It takes place in one room. Right. <laughs> and like that got nominated. Like, why doesn't One Night Miami right. get one million nominations? Because yeah. that was a I thought it was a terrific film. Mm. And beautifully lit, like, you know, mm-hmm. Tammy's. Well, with the work you're doing, Tim, I'm sure we're going to see more of these changes. 